Stephanie Gray has given over 900 pro-life presentations across North America as well as in Scotland, England, Ireland, Austria, Latvia, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. She has debated abortion advocates, including physicians who do abortions, and she has spoken on abortion at the headquarters for Google. Stephanie is author of Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from UBC in Vancouver and a certification with distinction in healthcare ethics from the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. She resides in Vancouver, Canada. Please welcome to our conference, Stephanie Gray. Thank you. Thank you so much. Am I on? I'm on. Excellent. Well, it's wonderful to be here. I want to begin by sharing with you a story. And it's a story of uh, these two young men, Dan James and Matt Hampson. So Dan is on your left. Matt is on your right. Dan and Matt have a number of things that they hold in common. The first is that both of them are from England, right? So I like to say that means they've got fantastic accents. Of course, that's right. So that's one of the things they have in common. The second thing they have have in common is that being from Great Britain, their parents placed both of them in rugby at very young ages. The next thing that Dan and Matt have in common is that both of them excelled in their rugby playing. The next thing they have in common is, interestingly, they never played together on the same teams, none of that, but when both of them were in their early 20s playing two separate games of rugby, both of them were hurt in scrummage accidents. And the next thing they have in common is that both of them were hurt so severely that they became paralyzed. Dan became paralyzed from the chest down and Matt became paralyzed from the neck down and requires the use of a ventilator. That's what Dan and Matt have in common. But there is a striking difference today. And the difference is that Dan is dead and Matt is thriving. Dan is dead because he traveled from England to Switzerland where he went to a euthanasia clinic and he returned to England as a corpse. Matt, on the other hand, has just built a massive rehabilitation center for people who have serious uh, sports injuries. He volunteers with children at their physiotherapy sessions. He's a coach in rugby, in his wheelchair, with the ventilator, teaching children how to play. He's an author, a writer, and a motivational speaker. Now, I want to begin this presentation about the story of these two young men because I believe their story identifies a key principle that should guide our thinking on the topic of assisted suicide and euthanasia. And the key principle is something that I draw from the writings of one of my favorite authors, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. Has anyone heard of that author or book? A few hands have gone up. If you haven't, I highly recommend the book. Dr. Frankl was a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist. His book, Man's Search for Meaning, is about his experiences and that of his fellow prisoners in the concentration camps, his experiences of profound suffering. The other half of his book is about his theories in psychology. And one of his observations was this. The last of the human freedoms that can never be taken from us is the freedom to choose how we respond to the situation that we're in. 
If we think about Dan and Matt, their experience of suffering was almost identical in that both of them were paralyzed. But their how do I respond to this suffering was very different. Dan chose one path, Matt chose another, which is proof that no matter how difficult our circumstance is, we don't have only one option, that of Dan. There is another path that can be taken, that of Matt. So what determines when we suffer, whether we choose the path of Matt or Dan? Well, again, if we look deeper into the insights of Dr. Frankel, he came up with a mathematical equation. And it was this, D equals S minus M. Here's what he means by that. Dr. Frankel said despair is suffering without meaning. Despair is suffering without meaning. If we look at this equation and think about it for a moment, S is part of the human experience. Every single one of us have suffered and every single one of us will suffer. We can't eliminate S from the story. But whether we despair or not in light of our suffering is entirely dependent on M. Can we find meaning? And to the extent that the number for, for, for meaning would go very high, we find a lot of meaning, despair goes down. But if the number for meaning is very low, then despair goes up. So we cannot eliminate S, but we can eliminate, eliminate D if we find meaning. And so our challenge for the culture, our responsibility, is to help people find meaning in the suffering they face so they don't choose the path of despair, so they don't choose the path of assisted suicide. What I want to do this morning is share with you more stories that I believe highlight principles that we need to be able to communicate to others when talking about this topic. After doing that, I want us to put ourselves into the shoes of people who aren't pro-life on this topic, people who think assisted suicide is okay, and I want us to explore the reasons they have for that. And once we look at their reasons, I'm going to illuminate an alternative response. In terms of more stories, the next story I wanted to share with you is the story of this young woman by the name of Zuli. As you can see from this photo, Zuli does not have legs and has only half of her arms. Zuli was born this way. Zuli has experienced profound suffering beyond her physical difference. When she was two years old, her father committed suicide. When she was seven years old, she was raped. Throughout her childhood, Zuli was bullied so that when she was a teenager, she thought about committing suicide. Thankfully, Zuli did not follow through on that temptation to kill herself. Thankfully, Zuli had an amazing advocate, has an amazing advocate in her mother, who has taught her to believe that she can overcome anything and do great things, even with her challenges. In fact, if you Google her, you can see the incredible artwork that she has created. Ladies, you can see videos of her putting her makeup on with her two half arms. Puts all of us to shame. Truly remarkable. But what's striking about her story and what has struck me as I've looked into her life is that there was a young man who, like Zuli, had gone through a very difficult time and was suffering. Before I go more into his story, the way it's going to connect with Zuli's is because Zuli has overcome great hardship, 
word began to spread throughout Latin America about her and her story. And so she's been featured on many media channels, outlets, interviews, all kinds of things, TV, radio, and so forth. And there was a young man who would go on, was going through a very hard time, suffering a lot, and he was so overwhelmed by his suffering, finding no meaning, that he was going to despair by killing himself. In fact, he was in a room with a gun in his hands, and that was the day that he was going to blow his brains out. But what he had done not realizing the impact it would have on his life. What he had done before getting close to picking up the gun to blow his brains out is he had put the TV on. And it just so happened that when he turned the TV on, the channel that he tuned into was airing an interview with Zuli. And she was talking about her hardship, her suffering, her obstacles, and how she'd overcome. And he was completely captivated by her story. He was so moved that he put the gun down, picked up a pen and paper, wrote her a letter, and has since become her friend. Now contrast the story of Zuli and that young man with the story of Will. Will faced turmoil in his life from the moment his life began. When he was in his mom's womb, his father abandoned his mother. His mother carried through with the pregnancy and was raising Will as a single parent. Unfortunately, Will's mom was plagued with paranoid schizophrenia. And when Will was five years old, she attempted to kill him with a butcher knife. She didn't succeed. She was sent to an institution. Will, at the age of five, was sent to live with his brother. He lived with his brother for only four years. When Will was nine years old, Will did not continue to live with his brother because his brother committed suicide. Before Will was 10, he was living on his own. Will is like all of us, made for relationship, for connection, for a communion of persons. But unlike us, he lacked that. He did not have it in a family, but because he needed it, because he craved it, he sought it out in a gang. Will got involved in gang activity, and by the time he was in his late teens, he'd committed murder. Will is from the state of Texas, where if you commit murder, you may get the death penalty. Will is not alive today because that was his fate. Now, you may be wondering, what does the story about a guy who got the death penalty and a woman without arms and legs have to do with the topic about assisted suicide? Well, here's what it has to do with it. Those stories identify the next principle that should guide our thinking on this topic. And that principle is something I draw from the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, he made the following remark. He said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality and tied in a single garment of destiny. He said, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. In other words, no man is an island. And we see the truth of that statement through these stories. If Zuli had killed herself, then her story of overcoming obstacles never would have been aired on TV at that pivotal moment when another young man who was suffering was going to end his life. 
Will was impacted by the choices of his parents, his brother. He impacted other people by his choices. Because no man is an island. And that's relevant when it comes to the topic of assisted suicide and euthanasia, because on that topic, all too often people will say, it's just my life. If I kill myself, it has no impact on you. But we know that that's not true. Because those stories prove that's not true. Those stories prove there, as with the topic of assisted suicide, if I were to end my life, that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. That we are tied in a single garment of destiny. That whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. If I eliminate myself from this world, my absence has an impact on you. As the absence of Zuli would have negatively impacted that young man who was suicidal. Our presence has an impact on people, whether for good, as in the case of Zuli now, or for evil, as in the case of Will and his life experience. But the point is that people cannot be so naive as to think that just ending their own life does not have a profound ripple effect on others. It even creates a situation not only where we lose the positive role someone could play in the world if they eliminate their lives. But it has an impact by creating a situation where if someone pushes for a law change for assisted suicide to be legal, as has been the case in several American states here, as is in the case of my country of Canada and other countries around the world, once we start to push for a change in the law, there are some people who will ask for assisted suicide down the road, not because deep down they want it, but because they're guilted into it. They might say, yes, I want assisted suicide, but only because they're thinking my neighbor had it a few years ago and she's not a burden on her family and I feel like a burden on mine, so I'm going to ask for it. And they're going to say, do you really, really want it? And I'm going to say yes, even though deep down it's more a duty thing. I feel that I should because no man is an island. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. The next story I want to tell you about is that of Jules Shooping. As you may be able to tell from this photo, uh, Jules is blind, but Jules is not blind by accident. Jules is blind by choice. Jules has a condition called body integrity identity disorder. In short, it's often referred to as BIID. People with BIID have a problem not in their body but in their mind. People with BIID have healthy bodies but are convinced in their mind that their body should be maimed in some way. In Jewel's case, she was convinced that she was supposed to be blind. From the time she was a young child, she believed that she should not be able to see. People who have BIID more typically manifest it, not with a desire for blindness, so much as with a desire to become an amputee. Someone with BIID may present at their doctor's office and beg their doctor to amputate their right arm, to beg their doctor to amputate their left leg. And it's not because there's a presence of gangrene. It's because they want to be an amputee. Now, you might be thinking, that's, that makes no sense. Well, that's the condition. 
So in Jewel's case, she was so convinced that she should be blind, wanted it so desperately that she claims that when she was in her, it was either late teens or early 20s, she claims she convinced her counselor to put some Drano in an eyedropper. Drano, the thing that we unclog our bathroom tubs with, and put that in an eyedropper and dropped it into her eyes. And that has led to the blindness that she has today. Now again, how is that relevant to today's topic? Well, it's relevant because of this principle. The story of Jules shows that we all have desires. Some of our desires are ordered, and some of our desires are disordered. And the mere presence of a desire alone does not mean we or others should follow through on it just because we want it. We first have to evaluate whether a desire is ordered or disordered before we determine whether we should execute what we want. And if that's true here, that can also be true when someone expresses a desire for assisted suicide. Before we just say, well, you want it, I will give it, we put it through the filter. Is it ordered or disordered? And if we can identify that it's disordered, like Jewel's desire for blindness is disordered, then we shouldn't follow through. The next story I want to tell you comes in video form, so I'm just going to let the video unfold. The iconic beauty of the Golden Gate Bridge. On a clear day, picture postcard perfect. But on the day we met Kevin Berthea, gray skies shrouded by fog, perhaps befitting. To actually get on the bridge for the first time, it was horrifying. This is the first time Berthea says he's walked onto the bridge since his suicide attempt 10 years ago. The wind, the noise, the traffic, the people. It, it brings me right back to that, to that very moment um, where I nearly jumped. Frightening, he says but necessary. The more and more I accept who I am um, and that know that that wasn't me, it's just a part of who I am, but it's not who I am and it doesn't define me, it helps me move on. On March 11, 2005, Berthea was the desperate 22-year-old captured in this photo. Battling depression for as long as he could remember, he said he had abandonment issues because he was adopted. And Berthea says he was grappling with being a new father of a premature baby, and he had just lost his job. He drove to the bridge, walked out, and climbed over the railing. Then he heard a voice. I approached it very slowly and asked his permission for him to allow me to come up and speak with him. Sergeant Kevin Briggs, whose job was to patrol the bridge for the highway patrol, said he didn't do much talking. That's what a lot of people need, is just someone that will listen to them. After an hour and a half of listening, the turning point came when the two spoke about Berthea's firstborn, a baby girl one month shy of her first birthday. She kind of made me understand that I need to be here for her. With the sergeant's help, Berthea climbed back over the rail, but his battle with depression was far from over. It took me eight years to just even confront that that was me on a bridge. And for eight years, there was no contact between Berthea and Sergeant Briggs. But two years ago, the sergeant reached out to Berthea's mother to see how her son was doing. I asked the sergeant why he didn't contact them sooner. If I contact them, maybe I could trigger something in them to go back to that day. And I don't, I don't want to do that. But in May 2013, the two men were reunited in New York City for the first time since the suicide attempt. 
Berthea was invited to present the Lifesavers Award to Briggs, given by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It was then, Berthea said, that he finally confronted what happened that day on the bridge. When he saw the photos of himself on the bridge, through the eyes of the audience. I wanted to hide it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to, and, and the more and more I talk about it, it has helped me, and the more and more I talk about it, it's helped people. <laughs> now, the father of three, Berthea recently found a new job and hopes to marry his fiance. Once lost, now a newfound sense of peace and happiness. I just focus on going this way. I don't worry about going back. I don't worry about left, I don't worry about right, I just worry about forward. Monday, I got the job and the car went out Monday. <laughs> All we can do is laugh. Now able to laugh at life's obstacles instead of despair. Bound by fate, the two men say they talk to each other often. We are going to stay friends forever. We're, we're brothers, so to speak. They plan to appear together to speak publicly about suicide prevention. The biggest, hardest thing I had to do was take a step. And that's the hardest thing anybody has to do is take that first step. A step forward in the never-ending journey of self-discovery and acceptance. Amber Lee, KTVU, Fox 2 News. The story of Kevin Briggs and Kevin Berthea, I, bring, I believe brings to light the next principle that we should bring to conversation on this topic. And I present to you the principle actually in the form of a question. And it's a question that two friends of mine have raised in an excellent book they've written that I highly recommend called A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. And in this book, they distill the assisted suicide debate down to one question, which is this. Who gets suicide assistance and who gets suicide prevention? Who gets suicide assistance and who gets suicide prevention. In other words, if someone like Kevin Berthea is on the edge of a bridge about to jump and you come along like Sergeant Briggs did, how do you decide whether you push him off or pull them back? How do you decide? Now, someone who supports assisted suicide would say, well, choice. Of course, I would never push someone off a bridge, they might say, but whether I give them an injection or whether I give them something to drink themselves, the point is if they want it, that's how I determine whether I give it. So then we could give an example and say, okay, maybe an 80-year-old woman, she's had cancer for years, chemo's no longer working, she's told you've got six months left to live. She says, if I'm going to die in six months, why don't I just die now? I'd like assisted suicide. Would you give her suicide assistance? And the assisted suicide supporter will say, yes, absolutely. You see, she wants it, so I would give it. So we say, okay, well, if choice is the determining factor, the person that we assist the suicide of wants it, and that determines that we help them, then let's go back to Kevin Berthea. He wasn't 80, but he was in his early 20s, and he claimed to no longer want to live, that he wanted to die. Would you assist his suicide? And what will even most assisted suicide supporters say in that context? Well, no, I wouldn't support him. Well, wait a minute. If it's truly about choice and following through on the desire of the person who claims to want it, then if you give the 80-year-old woman suicide assistance, then you should have given Kevin Berthea suicide assistance. But if you'll give it to the 80-year-old woman, but you won't give it to Kevin Berthea, if you think Sergeant Briggs did something right 
by pulling Kevin Briggs back or Kevin Berthea back. What that tells us is that it's actually not about choice. If we give suicide assistance to some and suicide prevention to others, then that smokes out the real reason involved. Not choice, but judgment. You're making the judgment, that's a life worth saving, of course. But that's not. And who are you and I to decide that that's not a life worth saving? If we believe all humans are equal, then we should give suicide prevention to everyone rather than just a select few. Having shared those few stories to bring to light principles that should be at the heart of our minds when it comes to dialoguing with people on this topic, we do need to also seek to understand where people are coming from and why they think nonetheless assisted suicide is acceptable. So what I want us to do now is explore the reasons people have for supporting assisted suicide. Let's entertain them. Let's give them a, a fair hearing. As we look at those reasons, then the next thing I want to do is look at the responses we can provide while acknowledging hardship exists, giving a different path than that of despair, rather the path of meaning. There are many reasons that people have for supporting assisted suicide, but there are five in particular that I want to highlight today. The first reason I'll often hear is that of physical pain. And as pro-lifers, we can agree that's a problem. We can agree we ought to intervene. Where we disagree is on the solution. Instead of looking at physical pain and ending with assisted suicide, we ought to look at physical pain and end with pain management. First of all, all of our ability to control pain is so much better today than it was 50, 100, and even many more years ago. In fact, I read one study that said that 97% of pain can be controlled with modern pain medicine, narcotics, and so forth. Now, if you were to throw that number 97% out, how would someone respond who supports assisted suicide? What about the 3%? What about the 3% whose pain we can't control? So a couple things we want to say. The first is, if we eliminate all the people whose pain we yet, we yet cannot control... What motivation do we have to come up with better pain meds? Isn't it the presence of a problem that motivates a solution? The next point I would make is that it is possible to alleviate someone's suffering even when we can't eliminate it. It might not be eliminating all the physical pain, but we can alleviate that suffering in other ways. I'm gonna share with you a story of a very uh, debilitating and painful condition, because I believe we do need to be intellectually honest that there is some physical pain that cannot be entirely eliminated. But I also wanna tell the story to demonstrate that the pain can nonetheless be alleviated. And the condition that I want to share with you is, is one that uh, this young boy uh, from Canada had, and he recently, as you can see by the date there, uh, passed away. Uh, Jonathan Petra had a very rare condition called epidermolysis bullosa. In short, it's referred to as EB. 
Children with EB are called butterfly children because their skin is as fragile as a butterfly's wings. They are born this way, and with the paper-thin skin, they develop very severe blisters that are excruciatingly painful. And they develop this all over their body, as you can see on Jonathan's body there. Um, people with EB even develop blisters internally down their throat. So the swallowing of food, that friction, is excruciatingly painful. They're often tube-fed as a result. There was an interview done of Jonathan a few years before he passed away, and I want to play a portion of that interview for us to get a sense of what his life was like, as well as to begin to see how we can alleviate suffering without eliminating the sufferer. So let's take a look. Where do you get the strength to get up every morning knowing what you're going to have to go through? That strength comes from the people around me because they do believe in me that I can get through it. For years, Jonathan believed he was the only one going through the pain. Until 2012, when he was invited to an EB conference in Toronto. It was a conference that changed his life. I had never met anyone with my condition. I had never, you know, had any explanation. I had never known there was anyone else. How did you feel when you saw the other kids that had it? I knew that it wasn't alone anymore. I knew since then that I was going to become, you know, an ambassador. I wanted to start helping other people with TV. In October of 2014, Jonathan put his story out to the world. With the help of the Ottawa Citizen, Jonathan courageously revealed his wounds to the masses. The article went viral throughout Ottawa and landed on a special team's doorstep. I read it and it was so moving that I brought the article in and we talked about what we could do uh, to help in any way we could. November 20th, 2014. <laughs> the Ottawa Senators invite Jonathan to a game and make him a scout for the day. He signs a pro contract from GM Brian Murray and takes questions from the media. Is there any one particular area of the Senators you're going to be focusing in on tonight, or is it the whole team that you're going to watch? A team isn't just made of one player, it's all of them, so I'll be watching the whole team. The Ottawa Senators are proud to welcome their newest professional scouts in the organization, Jonathan Since his day with the Senators, Jonathan has helped raise over $100,000 for EB awareness. There is no cure for epidermolysis bullosa. Most butterfly children don't make it to the age of 30. It's a reality 14-year-old Jonathan deals with head-on. Have you thought a lot about the future? Definitely. Evie's a cruel thing. And yes, I've, I've thought about it for sure. 
Like, how can't you? He knows it's a reality. But I think I just pushed that aside. You know, I'm here, and I'm going to go step by step, day by day. And you never know what the future holds. I may live to 100. We can't know. But I'm not going to stop anytime soon. I'm going to keep going. EB, he said, is a cruel thing. And it is. But Jonathan didn't die fighting to die, fighting for assisted suicide. He died fighting to live. In fact, he traveled from Canada to Minnesota where experimental stem cell research was being done, where stem cells were being taken from his mom's body and put into his body to stimulate the growth, better growth of skin. And the good news is it was showing promising results. But that procedure had risks and consequences. And unfortunately, a severe infection took over his whole body and ultimately ended his life. But the point is that Jonathan didn't give up. Moreover, as I have watched this video many times, playing it for many audiences, what has struck me is the theme of team. You know, when Jonathan was asked, what makes you get up every day? What did he say? It's the people around me, the people who believe in me. He knew he wasn't alone. When he was asked, hey, which hockey player are you going to watch at the game today? He said, a team is made up of more than one person. I'm going to watch them all. And interestingly, when we reflect on what motivated Jonathan to become an ambassador for EB Awareness and raise tens of thousands of dollars to help find a cure, interestingly, it was not his own personal experience of suffering. What was it? It was when he went to the conference and he saw there were other kids like him. And he could look into their eyes and immediately empathize with them, knowing so profoundly the pain they were living with. And when he realized he was part of a team in that context, he thought, I want to alleviate their suffering. I want to help them. And that motivated him to become the ambassador for EB awareness. So yes, physical pain is a problem and we need to respond by developing better pain meds as well as alleviating people's suffering by rallying around them and helping them find meaning, as Jonathan did. The next reason often given to a support assisted suicide is emotional pain. And again, we can agree that's a problem. Instead of the solution being assisted suicide, what about counseling? What about addressing the heart of the problem? I was reading a book by a palliative care physician who was telling a story about a patient of his who was dying of lung cancer. He said what was very normal was that this patient, Alice, was in a lot of pain. What was abnormal, he said, was that I couldn't control her pain. He said, I have had lots of patients with that type of lung cancer who had pain in their chest and I could control it, but Alice was different. She would lay in her bed writhing in pain, screaming in pain, he said, the other doctors and nurses would come to me as the head physician and say, you got to do something to help her. He was at his wit's end. He walked into the room one day, very gently sat on her bed and put his hand on her arm. He said, Alice, Alice, I'm wondering if I can't fix the pain in your chest because I'm wondering, Alice, if it's a pain I can't touch. Is it possible, Alice, he said, 
the pain is in your heart. And this look washed over her face of finally being understood, and she opened up. She said, Doctor, I have one daughter. She's in a relationship with a man I believe is very bad. I think my daughter wants to marry him, and if she does, I believe her future will be ruined. Because I won't be around to help her, because I'm close to death, I thought I need to warn her. And when I told my daughter what I think, she disowned me. And in that moment, the doctor realized he couldn't fix her physical pain because physical pain wasn't the problem. It was a psychosomatic reality, a physical manifestation of an underlying emotional distress. And if we care about people, we get to the root of that. We don't cover it up. We don't ignore it. There's an old song by country singer Tim McGraw who sings about a man in his early 40s who got diagnosed with a terminal illness. Do we have any country music fans here? Aren't we in like farming land? There's got to be country music fans, exactly. So do you guys know this song? He sings, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I did 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Thank you, we got it there. But it's the next line that is why I bring the song up. He sings, I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. And I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And then he sings, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. And I think that ought to be our response when someone is in emotional pain. How do we help them love deeper? How do we help them speak sweeter? How do we give, help them give forgiveness they'd been denying or receive forgiveness they'd been denied? The next reason people often give for assisted suicide is that they feel like they're a burden. Again, we acknowledge that's a problem. We need to respond. But rather than responding with assisted suicide, why not respond with perspective? Help them see the same situation differently. Imagine for a moment you saw an elderly woman walking down the road with an armful of groceries, you know, a bag hanging down, you know, and the one bag looks like it's about to rip open. As you're on the other side of the street, would you look over across the street, look at her frailty and think, whoa, that woman's a burden. Or would you look across the street and think, oh my goodness, those groceries are a burden. And because I see someone who's vulnerable, I want to lighten the load. I'm going to cross the road. I'm going to alleviate the burden. When someone is old, when someone is sick, when someone is disabled, there is a burden present. But the burden is not the individual. The burden is the age, the disease, or the disability. And when we care about people, we lighten the load. We help lift the burden off of them so they're not carrying it alone. There's a great quote from the late, great Saint John Paul II, who in his article, Salvifici Dolores, on the Christian meaning of human suffering, said the following, Suffering is present in order to unleash love in the human person. Suffering unleashes love. If you think about it, when do we step outside of ourselves? When do we look to the other and will their good and act upon that? Isn't it when we identify some need, some weakness, some vulnerability, some suffering? 
And the identification of that draws from deep within us this love that we pour out on them. Their suffering unleashes love. And when someone feels like a burden, that's an opportunity for it to unleash our love and to carry the load. The next reason people often give is not merely that they feel like a burden, but they feel useless. And indeed, we can acknowledge that's a problem. But we ought to respond to that problem with helping them see their self-worth. That ultimately, our identity isn't in what we do, it's in who we are. I watched a documentary of two older gentlemen. One had been a surgeon, one had been a university professor. Both of them were so frail, elderly, and sick that they could no longer pursue their professions. Both of them were preparing to travel overseas to Europe to have euthanasia. And as I watched their stories unfold, I thought, you know, as great as it is to be a doctor, to have life in your hands and the power to change it and save it, as great as it is to be a university professor and have a room full of eager ears and influence the course of, of the future of the world by how you teach them in the present. The danger with both of those careers is that because of by the world standards, they're so impressive that those who do those careers can get their whole identity caught up in them. So that when the surgeon can no longer do surgery and the professor can no longer teach, they think they should no longer be. And it's an important moment for us to realize that we are human beings, not human doings. That's why I love this advertisement by the Canadian Down Syndrome Society. I love this caption that we should celebrate being. And when it comes to people who feel useless, we need to help them celebrate being. There's a great program in Washington State, a care home that has a daycare in it. And it brings two groups, the very old and the very young, into interaction every day. People who, by the world's standards, could be defined as useless. But when we see them come together, we see them celebrate being. We see the old and the young in relationship, singing together, making sandwiches together, but being together. And we see the joy that that brings to both parties. And there's a beautiful quote by one of the directors of that center who said, we all have common needs to be recognized, to be loved, and have someone to share life with. That's what needed to be said to the surgeon and the professor. I know you want to do surgery. I know you want to teach, and those are great sufferings that you can't do those things. But you don't need them. You do, however, have other needs. You need to be recognized. You need to be loved. You need to have someone to share life with. And the good news is those needs can be addressed in every single situation. We can always recognize someone. We can always love someone. And we can always enter into the experience of life with them. And that ought to be our response. The final reason I'm going to highlight today people often give for assisted suicide is fear of a bad death. And we can agree that's a problem and an understandable fear. 
rather than orchestrate the death down to, you know, the, the year, the month, the day, the hour, the minute, the second, why not develop better palliative care? Why not develop better hospice programs where we place people in beautiful environments, not depressing environments? Where we help them enter into the present moment? Well, we help, where we help them repair any broken or fractured relationships, where we gather around them and simply celebrate being, entering into the present moment, doing simple things like sitting next to someone and holding their hand, watching a sunset, listening to music, but an experience that is shared, an experience that seeks to enter into the present moment, no matter the overall surrounding, still find beauty, wonder, and meaning in that. And so when our culture says we need assisted suicide because people are suffering, I would suggest our response is to say people will always suffer. How do we help them find meaning, as Matt did with his paralysis? How do we get creative and use our imagination in the face of hardship? How do we develop better pain meds? How do we get to the root of a problem? How do we learn to change how we see a situation? How do we learn to celebrate being and see our worth in who we are, not what we do? How do we get creative and imaginative and artistic in our hospice programs and our palliative care centers. Let's use our imagination and in the reality that we can't eliminate suffering, let's eliminate despair by introducing meaning. Thank you very much.